Father God, thank you for, uh, for bringing us all together in this space. But thank you that we can gather as a body of believers to, to support and care for one another. Lord, we pray that, uh, that when we gather in this space, uh, it, it's revitalizing to, to, uh, to all the people who are here. That we come to, together so that we can uh, carry each other when we're down. We can encourage each other and celebrate with each other when, when things are going well. God, may we always be a place that, that tries to shine a little light of heaven into the dark places uh, of each other's lives. God, we know, though, that you've blessed us not to just keep those things here. And so give us eyes for those who are hurting around the world, whether it be locally, uh, whether it be here in Granville, whether it be in Grand Rapids, uh, wherever it might be, may we have eyes to see those who are hurting and those who, 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 need, who we can help in that way as well. But it, or whether it be globally, Lord, we know that there's so much strife in the world right now. We just, I think of uh, the families who are displaced in Ukraine right now that, that don't know when they can go back home or if they do, if, they're gonna be, if there'll even be a place for them when they, when they do go back. God, we just pray that your spirit of peace can permeate uh, everything that's going on in that, in that region, that, uh, that there can be safety for those who need it, that there can be, that cooler heads can prevail and so that we can end the conflict uh, God, we'd pray for, um, for just something miraculous to happen. We know that there's a number of other things around the world as well, and our hearts go out into those places. Um, may we be a light to, to, to everyone who is, is hurting in one way or another across the world. In just a few minutes as we open your word, Lord, we pray that you meet us here through your spirit, that the words that we read aren't words that were just written thousands of years ago, but words that are alive because you're in them uh, and speaking to all of us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So if you've been with us for the last three weeks, um, then you know that we've taken a slight deviation off of our course, uh, our, our, um, our track on Matthew. Um, we committed, for those of you who are new to our space here, we committed uh, to taking the year of 2022 and, and studying the whole book of Matthew. And so <clears throat> actually up until the three weeks around Easter, uh, we had just been working slowly through the book of Matthew. We took a short break uh, to talk about Easter because that's an important thing to talk about at Easter. So we did that. Uh, but today, uh, we're actually going to loop back to where we were in Matthew. So just to kind of bring everybody back up to speed, what we've been talking about as we've been working through Matthew um, is, uh, is the li- we, we, it's focused on the life of Jesus, and Jesus has a, is a, a particular message that he, he speaks really very, very regularly through the book of Matthew. So after, after his birth story and after him growing up a little bit, he begins his preaching ministry uh, with a declaration. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's the first words he speaks as an adult preacher uh, in the world, uh, in the book of Matthew. And we've, ta- and we've talked about how that phrase helps us understand the rest of the book as well, that, that each thing that Jesus talks about in this space is helping us understand what that means. So if you're not familiar with it, we've, we, the word repent itself is simply just the word to turn, right? Saying you're headed in the wrong direction, so make a turn back towards something different. And so the declaration of Jesus is that the kingdom of heaven is all around you, that it exists, that it's here now, and we'll even look at some parables in a couple weeks that that really express that. But he says the kingdom of heaven is all around you, and if you turn towards it, you'll actually be able to experience little tastes of it here and now. And there are certain things that we can do to help us experience those things. And so Jesus begins his ministry with that declaration, that the kingdom of heaven is all around us, and that it's something that he wants to invite all of us into. 
He then moves into something we know as the Sermon on the Mount, this long teaching that he teaches to his disciples and those who can hear. He begins that one, that Sermon on the Mount, by declaring, the kingdom is here for all of you, right? Blessed are every, every person that doesn't feel like God's near to them or that God wouldn't be near to them. Uh, he says, this message is for you. He moves in from, to, into that to affirm their value as humans. And then gives a series of teachings on things that are compatible with the kingdom life and things that aren't, right? Things that aren't compatible he called sin, things that pull us away from that kind of heavenly life he desires for us. And the things that are, he says, will bring us into this kind of fullness of life. After the Sermon on the Mount ended, we moved into a different section, a little different mini-series that we're in now that we're calling On Location. And so the first three weeks of that little break, Jesus goes to different places um, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in Israel uh, and interacts with different groups of people. The second set of three people, or three things on this On Location series that we're going to look at today is he encounters three different kinds of people. Uh, and we'll look at that this morning. So we're going to be in Matthew 9 this morning if you want to follow along. And it's an interesting passage because it speaks into something that I think the church today has been asking a lot of. Um, and that is just what is the purpose of church? Why are we here? Now, may, now, a number of years ago, maybe you guys know this, maybe I'm going to date myself badly. There was a movement, and particularly in the social media spheres, in which people continually were making videos that were making the declaration that I'm spiritual but not religious. Does anybody remember those? Some of you are nodding, which makes me feel good, so I'm not all alone on that. The basic idea of these videos were, were people calling out the church for not being relevant in the world anymore. So the, the, the declaration that they were making is, hey, I like this Jesus guy. I think I actually believe that there might be something bigger than me in the world, but the religious institutions I seem, seem broken and seem irrelevant now. I'm spiritual. I believe in spiritual being something bigger than myself, but I'm not religious because I don't want to interact with whatever this church thing is. There were a number of different variations on it, but all of them kind of gave that same kind of message. Right? I love Jesus, but I hate religion. The claim of many of those people were that the principles, the teachings of someone like Jesus were really valuable, but the institution or the organization wasn't. Now, those kind of videos aren't as popular as they were probably 15 years ago, but I think that sentiment still kind of runs in our general society, especially here in America. If you take a look at any of the numbers of church attendance over the last 70 years, uh, the, the line is pretty clear. There's not a lot of variation. There's some little blips here and there, but over the past 70 years in America, church attendance has declined pretty regularly. Uh, after the pandemic, even more so. So it, it, the, the estimates of church attendance post-pandemic uh, is anything from churches are operating at 70 to as low as 50% of what they were before, right? So they lost either 30 or between 30 and 50% of people who used to go to church regularly don't anymore. And so that forces us then, if we're going to be a, a, a gathering of believers, a gathering of people together, we're going to call ourselves a, a church, we have to ask the question, what do we do with that? Right? Is church still valuable? Does it still matter? What are we doing here? Do we still need organized religion, or should we just refocus and just be spiritual? Now, clearly, because I'm up here, you probably know where, where my opinion lies. I have a dog in the fight on this one. But I still want to explore it all together, because that's what I want to look at today. Right? Maybe you've even asked these questions before. 
And I think they are really important questions to be asked. What are we doing? Why are we here? But they're also not new questions either. So we said we're going to be in Matthew 9, and we'll see that those questions have been around for a long time. Matthew 9, 14 says this. It says, Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is, it that, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment and make their tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This is one of those instances, I think, when, when, when somebody thinks they're asking Jesus just a straightforward question, and then he answers like this, and i got to imagine every once in a while it would be a little frustrating, don't you think? Be like, hey, I just asked a question about why you don't fast and we do, and he's like, let me tell you a story about a bridegroom and some wineskins. And you're like, dude, what are you talking about? Just answer easy, but he doesn't. But he's actually doing something really profound and amazing here in the midst of that. <clears throat> now, it's important for us to remember where we just were before this passage to help us understand what he's trying to do here. <clears throat> so the passage that comes right before the one we're looking at today is actually the calling of Matthew. So it's, it's interesting how late Matthew actually tells the story of his own calling. Um, but in that particular story, we see a couple different things. So if you remember way back when we began Matthew, we titled it uh, the, one, of the greatest gospels, one of the greatest stories ever told by one of the least likely disciples. And there's a reason that we, we said that. It's because Matthew really is one of the least likely disciples. Uh, Matthew was a tax collector, which maybe means something to you, maybe it doesn't. Uh, but, in the, but in this ancient world, a tax collector was someone who was not well liked by their people. So in Rome ruled the world, you knew that. Uh, and what they would do is they would, they, they would assign tax collectors a particular region. The emperor would say, for this particular reason, I, region, I need you to collect 100 denarius. I don't know, something. I'm making up a number, but you get it. I have to collect a certain amount, um, and, the, and, then I, and I'm going to come get that no matter what all the time. So the tax collector would have to have at least whatever their quota was. But if they were to take extra, as long as it wasn't completely egregious, they could keep it for themselves. So if I was told to get 100 uh, and I took 150, then I pocket 50 and I pay Caesar 100. Well, you can imagine that doesn't make you well-liked with your neighbors and friends, right? Because they know that you're rich because they're poor. And so there's this strife there. It also felt like, because Rome was the occupier, that you were working with the enemy. And so there would be a lot of frustration there. <clears throat> and so, so it, it's not surprising um, that when Jesus actually calls Matthew... Um, and then goes to his house for a meal and, and spends his time with tax collectors, the religious establishment, and probably some of the other disciples as well, were asking the question, what are you doing with these kind of people? Right? These are not the kind of people that good, holy people associate with. They're thieves, they're crooks, they're, they're, they're swindlers. Now, the interesting thing is when Jesus is challenged, the Pharisees actually say that. What are you doing with those people? He says, these people are exactly the kind of people I came for. But that didn't work well in religious people's minds because in their minds, there were certain ways to be holy. There were certain things you needed to do to make God happy. 
and they knew what they were. They held the keys to being right with God and, and, and often viewed themselves as superior because of it. In the Pharisees' minds, there are good people and there are bad people. There are holy people and there are sinners. And how do you know if you're good and holy? You know it by how well you keep the rules. You follow the law and you stay away from those who don't. It was a simple structure and they held it. Well, as we saw in the story of Matthew, probably almost a month ago now, Jesus doesn't operate that way, though. And that brought him many times, and will as we continue through Matthew as well, into a lot of conflict with the Pharisees. And now it also seems to have grabbed the attention of John's disciples. Now, the John we're talking about here in this passage is John the Baptist. So John the Baptist had a group of disciples as well, along with, um, with, with Jesus as well. And it's clear from this particular passage that they had been watching Jesus as well. And as they observed him interact with Matthew and the tax collectors, or also now in this particular passage where they say, hey, we've watched you guys for a while and you don't ever seem to fast. Now, if you don't know what fasting is, fasting is denying yourself something, um, most of the time food, uh, so that you can refocus yourself uh, on God, on, on your relationship there. Um, when, when you deny yourself something you need, when you feel that hunger, you're supposed to redirect your thoughts towards God. It's, it's a very common practice actually in all religions and in Christianity as well. And so John's disciples have been observing Jesus and they're saying, hey, why aren't you fasting? Uh, we do, the Pharisees do, but you're not. And so they're starting to ask some questions. Why were they asking questions, though? And I think to really start to wrap our minds around that, we have to talk about another group of people as well. In Israel, there were two different kinds of people, um, there are two different groups that would interact um, with, with both religion and with Rome. Uh, the first group was known as the Zealots. Right? The, the Zealots uh, believed that Rome was an occupier and it was their religious and moral duty to get rid of Rome. And so they did it by any means possible, often very violently. Um, the Zealots were, were often um, militaristic. They would often fight or kill to, to try to get Rome out of their space. It's interesting that we talked about this before, that when Jesus actually calls his disciples, he calls Simon the Zealot, somebody who is militaristic, and he calls Matthew, someone who works for Rome. Right? We talked about how that tension must have been really high. But we're not going to talk about the Zealots today. They, were, they believed that, you, that to follow God was to get rid of Rome. There was another group of people, though, known as the Essenes. Maybe you've heard of them before as well. They're, they're the group that, uh, that actually wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you've ever heard of those. So the group of people that lived in the desert wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls and preserved them that way. What the Essenes believe that it, is that in order to follow God you, you, in, and avoid the corruption of Rome and actually avoid the corruption of the religious institution in Jerusalem uh, was to completely remove yourself from society altogether. So what they believed is that there is no way to reform what was there. We just take ourselves out of it and start something new. And so the Essenes lived in the desert. Uh, they were very, very focused on making sure that you followed the letter of the law all the way through. Uh, they separated themselves out of the rest of society and kind of had their own little cloisters. Now, the reason we bring that up is because those, those ideas would have been running through John's disciples' minds. Now, we don't believe that John the Baptist was an Essene. Maybe he was, but we're not 100% sure. We don't think so. Um, but if you actually look at John the Baptist and the way that he lived in the world, you see that he actually relates a lot to the Essenes, right? If you know John the Baptist's story, what does he do? He lives in the desert, 
right? He wears weird clothes. He wears goat hair and stuff like that. He eats locusts and honey, and he's kind of separate from everybody. He's kind of a weird guy. And so you've got to imagine his disciples live that same way. So it's not a stretch then that they would be observing how Jesus does things and doing some comparing and contrasting. Right? Jesus isn't doing things like the Pharisees did. He's also not doing things like the Essenes did. He's also not doing things like John did. So what do we do with that? See, John and his disciples believed they were preparing, for the, preparing the way for the coming Messiah. So if, again, if you put yourself in one of John's disciples' shoes, you've listened to his teaching, you've followed him and helped him prepare the way for, for the Messiah, you've observed the way he lived, and you've probably compared, compared that from time to time with the Essenes. And so what would you expect the Messiah to look like then? Now, maybe you're not 100% sure, but it's reasonable to think he would restore the religious structure more similarly to the Essenes, or at the very least, like the Zealots. It would be something uh, in a big and powerful in that way. But now, over the course of time, you've seen Jesus eat with tax collectors, so he's clearly not a Zealot. So you might be thinking, well, then he must be more like the Essenes. And then you observe him in that space, and you see that his disciples don't fast in the way that you think they're supposed to which is not like the Essenes either. And so John's disciples begin to wonder, what is Jesus doing? And actually, it won't be long until they question whether Jesus is actually the Messiah they've been waiting for. Actually, in two chapters from now, Matthew 11, is, the, is when they actually reach out to Jesus and say, hey, are you the one? Are you the Messiah that we've been waiting for? Or should we expect somebody else? So they're starting to ask some really serious questions here. Jesus isn't doing anything the way they expected them to. He's not fighting Rome, and in this passage, he's not following the rules. So they ask him, why aren't you fasting? Why aren't you doing the good religious things you're supposed to do? And this brings Jesus into a position he finds himself in often. How he answers this question matters. Because if he answers a certain way, the understanding could be the rules just don't matter. These guidelines don't matter at all. But then, at the same time, he himself had said previously that unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and the scribes, then you're not going to experience the kingdom in its fullness. It also raises the question, wasn't the law itself given by God? So is there something wrong with it, then, if he's not following it? With all of those things in mind, then, it makes Jesus' answer amazing. It's a little confusing, but it makes it amazing. He answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. So let's look at that closely for a minute. He says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn? It's a weird way to answer the question, but, but, but when we look at the meaning, we'll see that it's actually really beautiful. Because what Jesus is doing here is he's changing their perspective. You see, the Pharisees and John's disciples see the law as a means to be good enough. They see it as something that gives them value. If I follow all of the rules properly, then I'm a good Jewish person, right? If I do all the things that God wanted me to, then, God, then I'm good in God's eyes. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a rule-based system that provides value to those who follow it well. If you keep the rules, you're good enough. If you don't, then you're not. It's completely transactional. And so then, unfortunately, what we see in that particular culture is that the rules or the law or the, this instruction becomes about the rules, the law, and the instruction. Rather than, rather than the law being for something greater, the law is about itself. 
We, we follow the law because that's what we do. That's what we're supposed to do. And we start to lose perspective. See, what Jesus is doing here is changing the perspective from rules for rules' sake to recenter things around why the rules existed in the first place. What Jesus is doing is helping them see what the purpose of religious practice actually is. See, they were fasting because that's what you do to be a good Jewish person. That's how you knew you were a good Jewish person. But what Jesus is doing, he's, he's asking the question, but what was fasting for, though? We already mentioned that a little while ago. What does fasting do? Fasting is the practice of denying yourself something to refocus your heart and mind on God. Fasting helps us reset our priorities. It gives us a new perspective on what our relationship with God is and, and what are some of the things we might be relying on in, instead. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's saying there is no need to fast. There's no need to deny yourself something to refocus on God when he's right here with you physically. Jesus is making the declaration, I am God and I'm with them already, so I don't need to do the practice that would reconnect them with me because I'm here in this physical space. That makes sense? Right? He's resettering them back around what the purpose was. He actually says, when I leave later, because I will, then they'll have to fast again. Right? When they're not in that physical proximity to me anymore, we'll go back to fasting to bring back the purpose it was originally intended to have. He's making the declaration that the rule is never supposed to be about the rule. It's supposed to be about the relationship. That the law isn't meant to be a value marker, but a relationship builder. Which is, again, why Jesus says that they'll fast again when he's gone. He reminds his hearers of the purpose of the law. Why does it exist? Why did God give us these directions in the first place? You see, the, one of the huge understandings you can gain from the Old Testament in particular is that nothing that God has asked us to do is arbitrary. It is perfectly acceptable to say, why would God ask us to do that? Even some of the weirdest things in the Old Testament. Every single thing that exists in the Old Testament is meant to do one of two things, either draw you into a deeper relationship with God or with another person. Every single one of them does that. Why, why don't you wear mixed cloth? Well, because, you, because the priest was a representative to the world of who God was, and so that's a distinguishing marker for them. It gives them the op opportunity to have people look at them and go, why are you different? And they're supposed to say, because I have this relationship with God. That's what it was meant to. It sounds weird to us in our context, but it's meant to draw them into that space. The rest of the law is just to say, hey, how do we interact together as a community? Every single one of the laws that God gives isn't arbitrary. It's meant to draw them into a deeper relationship with God or with each other, and that same is true now. The way that Jesus has asked us to live is meant to be a guide to the kingdom life, not just arbitrary rules for rules' sake. But Jesus doesn't stop there either, and I love this next part. Because, see, Jesus often challenges challenges the Pharisees on their understanding of the law, and so he teaches them a new way. Or he gives them a new command, if you will. The why of the law or religion or disciplines is the more important than what, Jesus so often says. Jesus knows, though, that this new command, this new way of living, that, that it's about the why rather than the what, isn't going to work in their old system. You see, the structure that the Essenes or the Pharisees have set up won't work with this new way of seeing the Old Testament. 
It's going to create tension. It's going to pull. It's going to press on the edges of the establishment, ultimately breaking it. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about cloth that's not shrunken or wineskins that are new, not old. Right? If you're going to patch a piece of clothing and you have an unshrunk piece of cloth on an already shrunk garment of some kind, once you wash it the first time and it shrinks, what happens? The seams pull out, right? That's pretty straightforward. The same is true with this new wine. That if you, can put it, if you try to put new wine into this old system, this old wineskin, which is probably the gut of a sheep or something like that, right? As the wine ferments, it's going to stretch on the edges of that particular container. A new one is strong enough to be able to handle that. It's got some give left in it, and so it can handle this, the new wine, the new system. The old will already have been stretched and will burst. What Jesus is saying is that I'm, going to, I'm giving you a new understanding of these old rules. And they're not going to fit in your system. They're going to pull on it. They're going to stretch it. They're going to push the edges, and they may even break it. See, it's easy to see at this point why there'd be tension between the Pharisees and Jesus. Because again, they're asking, wasn't the law given by God? Is it, was it really wrong the entire time? Why, is, why does it need to be remade new now? How do we reconcile that with the statements that Jesus makes that says, I haven't come to even strike one letter of the law, but to fulfill it? Actually, John helps us out a bit with this <clears throat> in 1 John. He says this, he says, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command, and its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. You see, what Jesus is saying is a little bit paradoxical. He's saying, I'm teaching you this new way of understanding because the way that you've been doing things inside of this system isn't working. He goes, but actually what I'm doing is just resetting you back to the way it was intended to be in the first place, right? This is a new command to you because you've been doing it wrong for so long, but it's actually the original old command that we gave way back when. John's saying the same thing. I'm, writing, I'm not writing you a new command. This is the command that God started with. But I am writing you a new command because the way that we see it and understand it is different and enlightened by Jesus himself. Does that make sense? Jesus is giving them new wine, a new way to understand the law and apply it to their lives, a new perspective, a new focus. It's new wine because it's a new perspective for this group of people who's gotten it wrong for so long. But it's, but it's an old command because it's intention, it was the intention of the law itself from the very beginning. It's the original truth that God gave made clear in Jesus. It's literally what he means when he says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it instead. See, the systems the religious folks in Jesus' day had built didn't actually help the advancement of the kingdom. They weren't guiding people into a deeper relationship with God or helping them care for each other. And we see Jesus call them on that often throughout the New Testament. And so they can't handle Jesus' message because it would burst their wineskin. Which brings us back to the beginning of today's message. People asking the question, why church? Wouldn't it be better to be spiritual instead of religious? And I think we can sometimes see parallels between the way that Jesus, the people in Jesus' day built their religious structures and ours. The religious structures in Jesus' day had lost their ability to accomplish what they were meant to do. The system, <clears throat> the system they, was created to follow the law, but they forgot what the law was actually for. 
And as a result, they missed the point very badly. And the systems themselves then couldn't actually handle the message they were intending to bring. Which forces us then to ask the same question. Is it possible that the skepticism surrounding the church and its practices are in many ways legitimate because our structures have done the same thing? It's convicting when we really start to think about it, but I think some of that was exposed through the last few years. Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we practice what we practice? What, why are we trying to live a certain way? If we're practicing our religion to affirm our worthiness or value, if we're gathering just because it's what you do, if the rules, the structures, and the practices have become about themselves, then maybe we, they have outlived their usefulness. Now, this isn't saying we should just scrap the whole thing. What it is saying, though, is that we should take a hard look at why we do what we do. Because personally, I do believe that religion, not just spirituality, is incredibly important. I think the church is needed now just as much as it's ever been. I believe in this place. I believe in the institution. I believe the church has the power within it to change the world. I think that's what Jesus says to Peter when he establishes the church. That's what's going to happen. But this is the way that he chooses to express himself to the whole world. As long as we realize why we're here, as long as we're always aware of why we do the things we do. Like we mentioned briefly, all of the things that we do here are meant to do one of two things. Either draw us into a deeper relationship with God or with each other. If you're here today just because it's what you're supposed to do, I'm still glad you're here, but we're, you're missing out on something way more. The gathering that we have here is so much more than something to check a box to say whether you're good enough or not as a Christian. We gather in this space because we're, we're meant to be together in a way that can encourage each other. This is a, the gathering of believers is to say, hey, when I'm having a hard time, Mike can, tell, can, can give me the encouragement I need to keep going. Or it's a group of people to celebrate with when things are going really well. We care for each other in that way. We also inspire each other, hopefully, to go out and, and, and provide those same things to people who aren't in this space. The same is true about individual practices as well. Why do you fast? You fast to help yourself reconnect with God. If you're doing it just because it's a thing to do, because, because somehow that's, it's just, it, it becomes just about that, then it's, it's not very valuable. If you do it to actually reconnect with God, you'll find a really beautiful part um, of the kingdom life in it. Why do we talk to one another about sin in our lives? Is it because, because if we want to rank each other on who's got more or less sin? Sometimes churches have operated that way. But it can't be that either. The why we do that is because we realize that sin is something that hurts us. That's something that's not complementary with the kingdom life. That's something that pulls us away from what God desires for us. And so we have a conversation with each other because we care about each other. This thing that you're doing is hurting you, and because I care about you, because I love you, I want to see you turn away from that. It's not a value judgment. It's a, it's a loving, relationship-building thing. Each and every practice that we do in this space is meant to draw us into a, the relationship with God or with each other. And if we're not focused on that, then the answer to the question, is church still relevant, is no, it's not. 
And we've seen that in America over the last 70 years, that as it became about just ritual or just checking a box or just doing the thing you're supposed to do, people are becoming less and less interested, right? It's, it's clear in the data. And I think it's because in many ways we've lost the why. And so the challenge this morning then for each of you is to take a look at your own spiritual life. What are you doing and why? Is it, giving you the, is it inter, helping you find the kingdom life that God wants for you? Or is it just something you do to do? Now, don't get me wrong. There are certain things that God asks us to do that are disciplines, that aren't going to feel great right out of the gate. But hopefully, just like you would if you were working out or something like that, you can see that that, stri- that, that striving, that, that, um, that wrestling, is actually making you stronger even if it's uncomfortable. But if you're doing things just to check a box, or you're viewing other people as how many boxes they've checked or not checked, we're missing the point in the same way the Pharisees did or the Essenes did. And just like John's disciples were saying, what are we doing here? Why aren't you guys doing these things? And Jesus would be saying to us, because it's not the point. So my hope is that what we can do here as a collective community is we can continue to develop good spiritual disciplines, good spiritual practices, we, that we can build things into our lives that, that, that guide us towards that life that God wants for us. Because if we do, I think that there is a new wine that is beautiful and delicious and life-giving, and I do believe that changes our mission entirely to a place that says, we've experienced a little taste of heaven and we want you to join us in it. And I think now, as much as ever before, the world needs that message. Everything that Jesus guides us to is experiencing this kingdom life, tasting, making the things that we do look a little bit more like heaven than hell. And unfortunately, sometimes that requires us to take a hard look at why we do what we do. But when we do that, We can change our structures to experience the kind of life that God wanted for us. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just want to come before you this morning and just realize that we haven't always done the things that you've asked us to do for the right reasons. That sometimes we lose our direction, sometimes we lose our way. Sometimes we make our, our... make the things that we do about the rules themselves, about value judgments, about who's good and who's in, who's out, who's welcome, who's not. Forgive us for that. God, we pray that you help us to see, for each of us individually, what you want us to do so that we can know you better, we can know the depth and and breadth of your love for us, and then give us eyes to see each other in that same way. May the things that we do constantly bring the kingdom here to earth. Amen.